<laughs> and we are live. You're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. Tonight's guests are Lauren Bukes and Usman T. Malik. Stick around. We're going to uh, start probably about 7.05 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. That's New York time if you're not in United States or New York City. We uh, we have guests joining us from around the world tonight. Uh, Usman is in our guests. And Lauren is in South Africa. I'm sorry, Lauren, uh, what city are you in again? I'm in Cape Town. Cape Town, right. Uh, so yeah, so this is great. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic has been horrible, but one of the um, the good things that we've been able to do, at least with the reading series, is have guests that we wouldn't normally be able to have, um, you know, people who couldn't necessarily travel to New York. So welcome. Hi, Amy. Uh, Amy's the first person in. Yes, hello, Amy. So uh, we're gonna see people trickling in. If you click on the right-hand side, you'll see the comments there. Uh, you can view the live uh, chat. We'll see people showing up. We're a few minutes early, so people probably won't come in in force until about seven or so. But uh, so how are you both doing tonight or this morning, depending on which time <laughs> zone you're in, right? Yeah. Did you, what time did you finish? 4 a.m.? So yeah, this was right now. We're at four fifty a.m. and I went to sleep you get at midnight. Up, you sleep first. Oh, I'm definitely a little sleep deprived right now. Yeah, like it doesn't look like four five in the morning for you. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like it. So for that's you, the, I mean, that's you don't the outside. Look outside. There you go. Quite awake is what I meant. Oh yeah, it's dark. Okay. Yeah. But you don't look like like you're up all night. <laughs> I actually have work to do right now, uh, right after, and that's in the U.S. So I'm doing telemedicine. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, cool. Nice. Patients lined up. <laughs> so what particular type of medicine do you practice? I, I I don't know. So I'm a I'm a rheumatologist slash immunologist. Oh. So COVID when the impact of COVID is right up our alley. Um, so you know, uh, we do. I mean, all the drugs that have been tried for COVID, except for the antivirals are from the rheumatology world. Yeah, so you you were at the forefront of that. That must have been crazy. <laughs> must still be crazy. So honestly, I was not at the forefront of it. Um, well, I guess sort of I am because I mean, we do see some consults, but really the people at the forefront are the critical care docs and the ER docs and the hospitalists, of course. So um, uh, for us, we are just like, you know, hey, can we use this medication? Do you recommend it? Sure, you, sure, you can use it. Go ahead. <laughs> so that's the, you know, just see the patient that's once and you'll be more or less done. So um, people who really observe the forefront um, label are, I think we do see some consult. We're getting a little feedback there. I think, I don't know. It was, that's... My fault. it was my fault I turned on the other thing and I didn't know. I just wanted to see it. <laughs> 101, Ellen, don't open the YouTube while we're... <laughs> I closed it down. Thank so, you. Now I know yeah, it's... Wait a minute, what's happening here? Uh, like, you were saying this, Ron? Sorry, I didn't catch the last part. Oh, no, I was just saying that the uh, front care workers would truly be the nurses, you know, the ER staff and the critical care people. Yeah. They are really the brunt of it. Yeah. yeah, so we were talking before we went live about the, um, like, the different experiences of the pandemic in, in each country. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, Lauren, how is it over there in South Africa? 
Our numbers have been quite scary, but it looks like we're starting to maybe come down off on the other side of the post-Christmas peak. Um, we're in a relative, we're in a medium lockdown at the moment. We have a curfew. Um, you can't have public gatherings really. Uh, funerals are really difficult, and a lot of people are really struggling with that in particular um, because it's so much, uh, you know, a huge part of South African culture. Um, and especially black cultures to be able to go to these kind of massive funerals and have a ceremony called After Tears, where everyone just comes together and celebrates the person's life. Um, and there's just been a moratorium on those. We're also dealing with a prohibition because our hospitals were full uh, in the week after Christmas and kind of up until now. You know, people have been like struggling to get a bed. And um, so the government introduced a prohibition, which they've done twice before during our lockdown to just stop alcohol sales to try and reduce the trauma cases that we're seeing happening in the ERs. And it's really interesting. Um, some of our major hospitals, including Baraguanath and Soweto, um, for the first year in history, did not have a single trauma case on yeah. New Year's Eve. Um, and it's just, so that's been kind of mind boggling. So we definitely have an alcohol problem in this country, um, but that's really no surprise with our unemployment numbers and the social ills that we have to deal with. So I think there's a lot of stuff kind of feeding into that. And I think it's really difficult because we're such a divided country economically um, to see how people are trying to adjust and adapt. And we also have a lot of surfer bros who are just outraged that the beaches being closed means that they can't surf uh, um, and protesting their rights. It's, um, it's like, guys, cool, that's fine. You can surf in, in a month's time, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I noticed that something's. Is your window open? There's your plants are moving uh, behind you. I turn my aircon on because it's oh, midsummer. Uh, no, I can, it's all right. I was just curious. You can put it on. Keep it on. I mean, if you're hot. I was just wondering. I thought you were getting a wind blow from outside. No, no, no. no. If, you know, I, I have a wind fan here so that I can do the. Uh, I couldn't uh, hear you anyway. So the plants moving. No, turn it on if you're warm. I was just cool. <laughs> I just imagine the wind coming through your windows. I'm, I'm trying to look at the art in the background. Oh, know. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. 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 You can't see my art. I don't have much art up yet in my new place. But you can see two pieces in the hallway. Nice. I'm, I love, it's one of the things I love about Zooms is getting to like these little sneak peeks into other people's worlds. Right. Um, other people. And closets. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. And and kids and cats and dogs like kind of come bodging and back if hopefully not, but yeah. Right. Hold on. Where's Jack? Jack is oh yeah, he's not here right now. <laughs> Jack the jerk. Jack, where are you? Jackie. Hi John, welcome to the, the live stream. If you're just tuning in, this is fantastic fiction at KGB. Tonight's guests are Lauren Bukes and Usman T. Malik. Uh, we're going to start the readings a little bit after 7 p.m. Eastern time, so stick around. Stick around. How many, how, is this our 10th or 11th? When when did we start doing this it? This is our 11th because, yeah, because we started in March, so next month would be 12 months. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It feels like yesterday. It doesn't feel that long. Well, I, mean, I haven't traveled in a year. Which is not me, you know, and I didn't miss it. I'm starting to miss it now. I mean, I usually travel at least once a month someplace. And it's really weird that I haven't gone any place outside the city, you know, for almost a year. 
you know, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, my friend Claire and I had lunch today and we want to go to Italy again. We were oh, talking yeah. about Italy last year. Uh, or maybe this year. I can't, this year. I can't. I don't even remember when we were going to go. But anyway, we're not going to go till the 22 now, I guess. So, uh, yeah. And, I, I have a friend. And I want to go to Australia. You know. I have a friend who I used to have a bumper sticker. Will uh, travel hard or die trying. Uh -huh. This is not the time to follow the principle. No. no right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Lauren, can you see the comments? Can you see what Amy wrote about liquor stores here? Yeah. Amy says, whereas we kept liquor stores open for very control, very different approach. I was just pouring celebratory sparkling rose. Yeah, they deemed the um, liquor stores here an essential business during the shutdown. That was drink though. I don't know. I last month I drank some of my vodka and didn't feel so good. So, hi, whoever Dream Master is. The world will be world will be our oyster when we get. Yeah, there's going to be some crazy parties when when. Uh, well, the first thing I want to do, my friend Donnie and I, we want to go to a casino casino for the weekend. <laughs> We're going to go to um, Foxwood or Mohegan Sun for the weekend. That's what we want to do as soon as we get out of our vaccine, as soon as we have our vaccines. That's I just want to see my friends. I always want to go and hang out with my friends and like and have a yeah. drink with them or something. Yeah, yeah. I've been eating meals outside. I'm, sick of, I'm kind of sick of eating outside. It's getting chilly. <laughs> Today was pretty yeah. cold. Even with a heater. It's like wearing your coat to eat is kind of weird. I mean, I'm getting used to it, but I think I really like to eat inside. <laughs> Again. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's been really hard, you know, because and I, I know Usman has a book coming out in February, right? I do. Um, yeah, it's coming out February 15th. It's gonna be <laughs> launched to a lot of fanfare on the online digital world. Greg <laughs> Nothing Jack live, I think. Uh, someone's asking about how um Jack likes the new place. He loves it. Sophie does too. They're still chasing each other. Jack will probably make an appearance at some point, unfortunately. I'm looking forward to it. My cats might. They might cause some havoc in the back. Um, so we'll see. But it's really, it's been, it's been really tough because you know when you launch a book, especially as like a foreign author, a non-US author, I should say, um, being able to tour in the US and being able to tour in the UK and being able to go to book events and festivals is how you connect with new readers. And it's been quite devastating um, not being able to do that. I mean, it's also exhausting and also very cool and glamorous. I mean, what a privilege to be able to do that kind of thing. But um, but it's been really tough not to do that. I mean, my book doesn't quite feel real because I haven't had the relentless, exhausting um, touring, but also that amazing moment to actually connect with readers and have people come up and talk to you afterwards. We did a command. It came out in July. Um, it was actually brought forward. It was supposed to be in September, but because it was dealing with a post-pandemic, um, I think they decided it was better to bring it forward. Um, but but yeah, I, I miss that. I miss that reader contact and being able to have these great conversations and hang out with other authors and you know bitch about the industry. And <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, hopefully we can recreate a, a little bit of that tonight with the. Uh some of the viewers. Um, so uh, we're going to do a and a if this is your first time watching us uh, after the readings. Uh, we're going to do a and a with the authors. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask them, uh, you can do that in the live chat window. And uh, yeah. 
So uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, I host this series with Ellen Datlow. Uh, tonight's guests are Lauren Bukas and Usman T. Malik. And um, we're going to get started with the readings in just about seven <laughs> minutes or so. We're just waiting for people yeah. to, quote unquote, come into the bar. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us. Lauren, did you see the, there's a comment from Francis? Hey, Francis, uh, that's so lovely. Thank you so much. I also see John Kwok, um, who I know from back in the day, also here. Thank you so much for showing up. Um, yay, readers. Um, and yeah, and also yay, libraries. I'm, I'm so thrilled um, when people go to libraries and when they take out my book um, because libraries are kind of lifeblood and librarians are some of the best people I know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really just miss going to my local library and just, you know, they have like a, it's not a very big library, but just the, the new releases section, just go, like I, I reserve books and then I would go there and say, oh, wait, I, that looks cool. And then, you know, get that. And it's just, I don't know. The librarians are cool there too. Yeah. So, you know, um, riffing off of your point, Lauren, I was, uh, so my book's coming out on February 15th, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's supposed to ship um, globally, hopefully, because it's not supposed to be distributed overseas for Pakistan rights only. Yeah. Um, I talked to the post office yesterday, and the time they gave me for delivery is two months. Oh, man. Yeah. They said that uh, everything is delayed. And interestingly, they said that most of their delay they're experiencing is on the USPS end. Oh, the, really? That's the, not the, surprising the, at all. Yeah. <laughs> Right. People have been complaining, but I mailed two packages, two belated Christmas gifts, and they got there the next day. This is in New really? York, New York. One got there the next day, the other one, and just regular mail. I mean, packages, you know, like priority or whatever, I don't, first class. One got there the next day, the other one got there in two days, which is like really weird, you know. Because well, you got lucky. I mean, like the holidays, apparently they were extremely yeah. behind. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully maybe it'll be better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is DeJoy gone yet? <laughs> I don't know. The postmaster. Yeah. The evil postmaster. Hopefully he will be soon, though. I think a yeah. lot of heads are going to start rolling slowly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, some quickly. <laughs> there yeah. are at least a couple of people already gone, I've heard. I can't remember who. I just read it's about one person was gone immediately. No, that's good. We should start, I think, don't you think? Okay, sure. Yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us. You're watching Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. Uh, tonight's guests are Lauren Bukas and Usman T. Malik. Uh, so the series um, normally would be at the KGB bar in Manhattan. Uh, the KGB bar is a, a really great um, Soviet-themed bar um, in the in the East Village of Manhattan. Uh, it used to serve, um, during the McCarthy period, it, it was a, a place where Ukrainian socialists used to meet and talk, and there was a kitchen in the back, and, and now it's this great bar, and uh, New York Times called it one of the best uh, literary venues in, in New York, and it really is. And so, every, you know, almost every night of the month, uh, pre-pandemic, they had, um, or they, yeah, they had, uh, some form of literary or poet poetry or, or artistic event going on. 
Uh, so our series was always on the third Wednesday of the month. And then uh, when this happened, you know, when this terrible pandemic happened, uh, Ellen and I decided to go live on the internet. And uh, we just said before, this is this is our 11th month doing it live. And, it, does uh, <laughs> it does not feel, but it's actually, um, it's been like really great um, in the sense that we're, we've been able to get people who probably would never have come to New York. Yeah, um, I mean, we had people scheduled who were local maybe, but at a certain point when we, we decided to start scheduling people who were unlikely to get to New York or, you know, hard for them to get to New York because it was a perfect opportunity to get people who can't. Yeah. Sorry. So, so like, for example, tonight, uh, Usman is in Pakistan and Lauren is in uh, South Africa. So it's uh, really have a global audience tonight. Um, and we're excited about that. So um, the series itself um, is, um, it started off in the late 90s by um, writer Terry Bisson and um, editor Alice K. Turner. Um, they were attempting to bring together mainstream writers with writers of speculative fiction, um, which the series now is pretty much 100% speculative fiction. Uh, in the spring of 2000, I'm sorry, Ellen, what'd you say? A little crossover. A little bit of crossover, yeah. In the spring of 2000, uh, Ellen Datlow took over for Alice Turner uh, as, as co-host. And in August 2002, Gavin J. Grant, uh, publisher of Small Beer Press, stepped in for Terry Bisson. And uh, I stepped in for Gavin in uh, April of 2008. Um, oh, I almost forgot. This is important. So our... Um, so the, the, the KGB bar itself, like I said, has been shut down. I mean, they're open now, but they've been like severely, their hours were like, I, I think they only opened like two months ago. They were closed for the whole pandemic. So they're a great bar. We want to keep them around. If you can click that link or go to that link there, it's in the YouTube description uh, and you can support the bar. They have a, um, uh, what is it? A GoFundMe or something like that. It's, it, you could support the bar give them five bucks cost of a, a beverage. Um, it goes towards the bar. Um, the other thing is our series itself. Um, we, uh, we give the readers a little stipend each month. Uh, the streaming service we use costs a little bit. Uh, and there, there are, um, you know, when we were meeting at the actual bar, we would take the guests out for dinner, uh, so if you can support us, if you go to the link there and you, you want, you feel like supporting the reading series, we'd greatly appreciate it. All the money goes towards the series and the, and the, the guests, the author guests. So if you can, uh, if you, you want to uh, support that, that'd be great. Um, so uh, we're almost, we're almost at our, our uh, first reader, which would be uh, Usman Malik. But before we get there, um, Next month, February 17th, we have reading uh, Shweta Thakrar and Kathleen Jennings. March 17th, we have Jeffrey Ford and Karen Warren joining us from Australia. April 21st, Nalo Hopkinson and Bruce McAllister. And uh, I don't have the other months in front of me, but I will look that May 19th, up. May 19th, Evangelist Slatter and Rebecca Roanhorse. Okay, yes. So there you go. So um, we've got a, a great lineup coming for you in uh, 2021. We're super excited about it. 
And uh, yeah, so after the readings, uh, we're going to have a Q&A with the authors. So uh, if you have some questions you want to ask them, put that in the live chat. And um, and and yeah, and then we'll we'll just get on to the our first reader. Uh, our first reader is Usman T. Malik. Usman is a Pakistani American writer and doctor. His fiction has been reprinted in several years' best anthologies, including the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy series, and has won the Bram Stoker Award and the British Fantasy Award. Usman's debut collection, Midnight Doorways: Fables from Pakistan will be out in early 2021. Welcome, Usman. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for the kind introduction. Um, should I go ahead and start? Yes. Yeah, right. go ahead. We're going to be so, muted. OK, so I'm going to be reading from this. It's coming out. Um, it's coming out on the 15th of February. And uh, I'm going to be reading from a, a, a. I'm going to be reading a short story called "The Wandering City" that was published at the Us and Flux series uh, through the University of Arizona Center for Science and Imagination. And without further ado, I'm going to dive right in. The Wandering City. On a cool April morning, moments after the Mozan walks sleep drunk to Mughalpura Mosque, and before the discounted holometer at Lahore's Abdusalam Quantum Center starts beeping. The city flickers at the edge of a Florida wetland and wanders into Lahore. Alaraka is the first to see it. He has just crossed Shalamar Bagh via GT Road on a donkey cart laden with cattle feed when the city appears. One moment there's the hustle of the highway, the milkmen, laborers, city sweeps, and truck drivers wheeling and trilling their way through dawn-emptied streets. The next, the world on Alaraka's right has vanished. Gone are part of the highway, narrow houses, bakeries, barbecue stalls, Mughal gardens, ill-funded primary schools, and grocery, stop, uh, grocery shops. In their place stands the city. Alaraka gapes at the gleaming black stone walls, tall like a mountain ridge. As the sun brightens, the walls brighten until it seems they are burning. It takes Alaraka a moment before he realizes what he's looking at. God protect me, it's true, he says, his voice filled with awe. The wiles of Satan have found us, it's our turn. Before temptation overtakes him, Alaraka cracks his whip and trundles atop his donkey cart away to a mundane, safer world. News of the arrival spreads like a plague. Stall to stall, door to door, alley by alley, echoes the whisper. The enchanted city is here. Yes, that city in our city. Wide-eyed Lahoris gather outside the city's rectangular walls as they might at sites of massacre or accidents. Some are friends and family of those on whom the city landed, and these bereaved rend their clothes and wail. Their loved ones are gone, and not a trace of them will be found. The eminent cleric nicknamed Molana PJ will be on TV soon to announce a mass funeral in absentia as per the Al-Azhar consensus. But for now, the remaining Lahoris gawk at the city, nudging each other, daring someone to climb the walls. A foolhardy youth's friends prod him into volunteering, just to peek their coax. 
The tallest truck-mounted telescopic crane they can find is brought and the boy, Subhan, is seated on the boom. The boom is extended to its limit. To no one's surprise, they've all heard the stories. The extended arm's height matches the top of the wall so precisely, it looks like it was built to specification. Everyone cheers. Subhan steps onto the top of the city wall and gazes down. An old man shouts up at him, Tell us what you see. I see, Subhan begins, then stops, staring below. The crowd jostles for position, and a teen with binoculars strains them on the young man's face. You, Subhan calls, his face bright with wonder. How beautiful you are. Oh, were I a speck of dust. With that, the young man leaps off, into, leaps off the wall and into the city. Moments later, there is a thud. The crowd gasps, shocked by this confirmation. They watch documentaries about the Enchanted City. Their children follow fanzines and weblogs and YouTube channels. They are in on all, excuse me, they are in on all the juicy details. They also know dozens more will volunteer to climb, including some with premeditated plans for a jump. Just, with, just when a man with rat-like features offers to help draw lots for the next lucky climber, there is commotion. Screeching tires, a blaring loudspeaker. The army has arrived. The city is barricaded. Barbed wire fences put up. Choppers and drones fly over the walls to discourage trespassers and jumpers. New aerial photos go viral. Lofty palaces, golden domes, splendid white terraces rising from unblemished houses, lovely gardens with waterways and fountains, trees bent with ripe fruit, and close to the black walls, a seemingly placid lake on the surface of which prance human figures. Word is sent to the WEC and UNESCO that the 9th century heritage site has shifted to Lahore. A team of locksmiths is challenged to find any door or hidden mechanism that might provide ground access to the city. Fulfilling expectations, they fail. Civil engineers are called. They arrive debating whether it is a city or a microcity. It's two kilometers in length, about a kilometer and a half in width, exclaims one, and leave with the argument still raging. Heritage architects and artists are invited to examine the city's walls. They find them pristine, not a scratch or gouge. The enchanted city is meticulous at maintaining itself. The prime minister and chief of army staff make speeches on TV, declaring a national day of mourning, expressing grief for those lost to the city's relocation and hope that its presence will be good for the economy. I want to tell my nation today, Gabrana Nahiye, declares the PM bombastically. We must not fear it. We are a country brimmed with hidden wonders, unimaginable beauty. The enchanted city adds to that legacy. Imagine the untapped tourism potential. We will turn this calamity into opportunity. Pakistan Tourism Development Corporation's marketing kicks into high gear. Vloggers and bloggers are handsomely paid. TripAdvisor, Condé Nast, and other travel sites are contacted to update their databases. Flight traffic to Pakistan increases a hundredfold as EC chasers, rich louts, and bucket listers swoop in to catch a glimpse of the enchanted city. Historians, anthropologists, sociologists, biologists, and economists flock to Lahore to study the city and its impact on local populations, human and avian. Food carts pop up alongside the barricade. Pani puri, papri chaat, mixed chana, coconut water, and rose water sherbet sell out daily before noon.
photo wallas, cigarette wallas, toy makers, street magicians, cotton candy men grow rich in weeks. A Jew seller named Bholi makes so much money that he opens a branch on the other end of the city near Shirawala Park. As per protocol, an MOU is signed between the World Enchanted City Cooperative, WEC, and the Pakistani government, following which sanctioned visits into the city begin. Directly behind us, says Dr. Abda, uh, Dr. Abda Parveen, director of the Lahore Museum, as she, a dozen high school students, and seven VIPs disembark from the military chopper that has landed on a green belt inside the city. Directly behind us, now fussing at us, are the marionettes. She points at the gorgeous girls in vibrant robes standing by the stone walls. 1,001 line the entirety of the city's perimeter. When they see the spectators watching, the girls smile in unison, bat their eyelashes, and gesture to the group to come close. Next to them, on blood-darkened ground, which shimmers to look like water, Subhan's crushed skeleton lies, covered in tatters of fabric and skin. The chills of Lahore and the ravens of the city have finished with him. We believe the sirens are the city's sentinel mechanism. Few wall climbers are able to resist their call. And why do you suppose that is? asks a dignitary. The magic of the mutable marionettes, the director smiles, or so the old chronicles go. Weck scientists believe the granite at the top of the walls is laced with pheromones and hallucinogens. This was hinted at in animal experiments a few decades ago before UNESCO and WEC put a stop to such work. There's also an energy signature detected each time a climber locks in on a siren, accompanied by the subtlest shift in the siren's physiognomy. We believe the siren changes features to maximize the potency of its call. Dr. Parveen leads the VIPs, including siblings of a four-star army general and a cousin of the PM, and the kids through perfectly formed gardens, past curved marble gates, and into a market square. The market is crammed with fruit carts, sweetmeats, delicate cutlery, and colorful desserts, over which are shoppers bent and haggling and motionless, petrified in the act of commerce or argument. The same vision greets them wherever the dignitaries go. City center with its twin brass towers, the palaces, verandas, houses, and tombs. Parks and gardens filled with animals and humans, sweethearts and sworn enemies, stilled and preserved. One high schooler begins to hyperventilate and is led back to the chopper, while the rest hurry to finish their tour of the city before sundown. A city haunted by its own people, forever alive in death pronounces the director. We believe these to be descendants of Scythian nomadic tribes who converted to Islam and built a city in which to settle, but were trapped in a space-time rift. The trigger remains unknown, although inscriptions discovered by a WEC seem to describe a blight after the arrival of a mysterious enchantress. A student snorts, yeah, blame a woman every time. Magic, says another. You also believe the Redditors who say the city's a place between the celestial and the terrestrial. She makes air, air coats. The WEC physicists call it quasi-particle displacement. Why no midnight wars? inquires a dignitary. What happens at sundown? Why, says the director, the tomb opens. When the VIP raises her eyebrow, Dr. Perwin points to an ornate marble tomb as large as a soccer field. 
It has eight sandalwood doors studded with gemstones and golden nails, surrounded by dozens of sepulchers. The tomb opens at dusk and 100 automatons pour out. Anyone remaining in the city is torn to shreds. She shivers with the thrill of it and adds thoughtfully, their armor is impregnable. How long does the city stay in one place? Asks the student. Three years on average, but anywhere from seven months to five years. Hey, I wouldn't do that. The director's sharp voice startles the VIP scratching at a ruby on a sandalwood door. The man backs away sulking. I was just taking a look. Man, some raises a hand. Has anyone ever tried to steal the gems? The director's smile is cold. Yes. And they follow her gaze to the sepulchers arid around the tomb of automatons. For months, Lahori celebrate and revere the enchanted city. Flower garlands and ceremonial threads are hung from barricade and barbed wire. During Basant season, teenagers gather on rooftops and fly kites and drones with knockoff GoPros and generic cameras across the city's skyline, taking photos of the tombs, sepulchers, palaces, houses. Pakistani Insta, Twitter, and Snapchat fill up with bird's eye views and selfies and filtered renderings. Nighthawk photos show automatons busily surveilling the city, even as Lahori's drink Lassi and Bhang and, and dance around the perimeter all night. Things come to an unfortunate head when on a sanctioned trip, the religious scholar Molana PJ glimpses the clockwork jinn that trundles out of the city's mosque on a Friday, cups its hands over its mouth and sounds the call to prayer, an eerie ancient bellow that reaches miles past the walls of the haunted city. Molana PJ feels it in his heart, a bass thrum that triggers his atrial fibrillation. Molana is carried to the chopper and instant fatwas are passed against the existence of the enchanted city. Radio stations blare propaganda against the city of infidels, screaming, conspiracy, the jinn's an Israeli weapon, the sirens a Hindu plot against our pious boys. Defend the Sharia marchers fill the streets, while most of Lahore watches uneasily from the sidelines, pseudo-mullahs and goons storm the barricades, hooting and spitting in the army men. It is feared that rights may break out. An army hawaldar might be bribed, a sympathetic captain convinced to step aside, the city's walls scaled, the palaces and sepulchers raided, maybe a few petrified men killed or women carried off. Nervously, the chief and prime minister watch the anarchy churn. The enchanted city protects itself. It can be unforgiving. That much is clear from eyewitness accounts dating back to the 19th century when the first sightings were reported. Who knows what might happen if it is truly assailed? Also, the MOU. Pakistan will be a pariah, they whisper. Then one morning, the city is gone. Lahori's wake up and there's nothing but blankness the size of old Lahore on GT Road. Army men, food vendors and beggars stand in a circle around the vast emptiness, watching dust blow in veils and shopping bags swirl. They scratch their heads. We affronted the inhabitants of the city, an old beggar offers. It might never return. His eyes missed over. And if it does, I might be long dead. Slow for a day or two, then so fast it seems a blur, Lahore reclaims the blackness. 
appropriately bribed government officials sell the residential plots to property tycoon for pennies. Leheria Greens will be the community of your dreams, the tycoon promises. Even as the newspapers report a sudden increase in number of homeless and jobless jumpers in Lahore. The clever rat-faced man puts up a headstone where Subhan was killed, proclaiming him and the others lost to the city. Martyrs! And a shrine springs up around it. Pocket Quran sellers, shoe shiners, shoe keepers to watch your chapels when you take them off to pray. And rosary makers build a circle of commerce around Subhan. Lahore Development Authority puts up half-hearted warnings against illegal construction, but shopkeepers and traders bring a stay of proceedings order so the LDA is forced to watch food stalls wheel in and ugly illegal structures pop up as the court decides on a litigation date. Months later, a 10-year-old girl who's moved into a Leria Green home with her family picks up something gleaming in the soil of her backyard and examines it. It is a brass marionette no bigger than her ring finger. When sunlight hits its eyes, one of them closes, so it seems the figure is winking at her, pleased at a shared secret or a promise. The girl smiles and slipping the marionette into her pocket, returns to her games. That's the end. Thank you. That's really wonderful. <clears throat> that was great. So, uh, we're going to take a, uh, a little five-minute break, real short, so you, everyone can get a drink and uh, do what you got to do for, for a minute, and then we'll be back in five minutes with Lauren Bukas. So, uh, so stick around. Yes,
Well, that was a great reading. Thank you. Yeah, that was terrific. No, thank you. So our second reader tonight, please welcome Lauren Bukas, who is a South African novelist, ex-journalist, and sometime documentary maker who has written five novels, a pop history, a short story collection, and New York Times bestselling comics. Her novel, Zoo City, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. The Shining Girls is soon to be a TV show for Apple with Elizabeth Moss and won the University of Johannes Prize and the Strands Critic Choice Award, among others. Her new book, Afterland, about a world almost without men, is currently in development. She lives in Cape Town with her daughter. Please welcome Lauren Bukas. Thanks so much, Ellen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is 2 a.m. in the morning here, so it's kind of like being in New York. I feel a bit jet lagged. Um, so please forgive me if I'm a little slow off the mark on anything. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to be reading from Afterland um, or Afterland if you're in America. And yeah, uh, I'm going to jump straight in um, to yeah the beginning. June 21, 2023. Naming rights. Look at me, Cole says. Hey, checking Miles' pupils, which are still huge. Shock and fear and the drugs working their way out of his system. Scrambling to remember her first aid training. Checklist as life boy. He's able to focus, to speak without slurring. He was groggy in the car getting away. But soon he'll be capable of asking difficult questions she is not ready to answer about the blood on her shirt, for example. Hey, she says again, keeping her voice as even as she can, but she's shaky too, with the come down of adrenaline. Seeing, seeing Billy hauling his body like a broken punching bag, thinking he was dead, but he's not. He's alive, her son is alive and she needs to hold it together. It's gonna be all right, she says, I love you. Love you too, he manages. An automatic call and response like an invocation in church. Except their cathedral is an abandoned gas station restroom where the rows of empty stalls gape like broken teeth in the pre-dawn light. Toilet seats long since wrenched off by vandals. Miles is still shaking, his thin arms wrapped around his ribcage, shoulders hunched, teeth clicking like castanets, and his eyes keep jerking back to the door, which has been kicked in before this, judging by the scuffs and dents in the plywood. She, too, is expecting that door to be bust open. It feels inevitable that they'll be found and dragged back. She'll be arrested. Miles will be taken away. In America, they steal kids from their parents. This was true even before all this. In the shards of the mirror, her skin tone is gray. She looks terrible. She looks old. Worse, she looks scared. Cole doesn't want him to see that. Maybe that's what superheroes are concealing behind the masks. Not their secret identities, but the fact that they're scared shitless. The glossy blue tiles above the sink are broken into mosaic. The pipe half wrenched from its mooring. But when she opens the faucet, it creaks and groans and water sputters out. This is not blind luck. She spotted the water tanker on the roof of the looted gas station store before she slid the car around the back and under the tattered shade cloth. Devon was always the organizer in the family, the planner. 
but she has learned to live 30 seconds ahead of wherever they are, calculating all the possible tra trajectories. It's exhausting. Live in the moment was always a philosophy of luxury. And damn you, Devon, Cole thinks, for dying with the rest and leaving me to do this on my own. Two years later and you're still mad, Boo? She still hears her dead husband's teasing voice in her head, her own homemade haunting. A lot of that going around these days. Better hope your sister doesn't join the ghost chorus. She splashes her face to banish the thought of Billy, the sickening sound of metal against bone. The cold water is a shock, the good kind, clarifying. She can feel all the guilt in the world later, once they're out of here, once they're safe. She peels off her bloody shirt, stuffs it into one of the sanitary bins. It's seen worse gore than this. The mirror is a fragment of its former self. And in the reflection, the light glancing off the tiles makes her son's skin look beige. What did Billy give him? Benzos? Sleeping pills? She wishes she knew. She hopes the drugs were the kind that induce amnesia, like wiping an Etch-a-Sketch clean. She rubs his back to warm him up, calm him down, both of them needing human contact. She knows him so well. The dent of his MMR vaccination, the white twist of a scar that runs up from his elbow from when he broke his arm falling off the top bunk. The movie star notch on his chin, which he gets from her dad. Rest in peace, old man, she thinks on autopilot because she didn't get to say goodbye. And somewhere deep inside Miles, the errant genes the virus couldn't latch onto. One in a million. No, that's not right. One of the million left in America. The rest of the world has more than that, but barely. Less than a 1% survival rate, which makes all of this so dangerous, so stupid, like she had another choice. Holy living boys, Batman, gotta catch them all and keep them forever and ever. Future security, the Mail Protection Act, for their own good, they keep telling her. Always for their own good. God, she is so fucked. Okay, she says, trying to be cheerful. The resolve like lead in her gut. Let's get you into clean clothes. Cole digs through the black sports bag that was in the trunk of their getaway car, along with water, a jerry can of gasoline, all your basic fugitive essentials and pulls out a clean sweatshirt for her. And for him, a dusky pink long sleeve tee with a faded palm tree, overlaid with bedazzled studs, skinny jeans with too many zips, and a handful of sparkly barrettes. What are little girls made of? Unicorns and kittens and all things that glitter. I can't wear that, Miles rises to protest. No way, mom. Buddy, I'm not fooling. She was always bad cop in the family, setting rules and boundaries as if parenting wasn't the worst game of improv ever. Pretend it's trick or treat, she says, putting the barrettes into his afro curls. She remembers the workshop she dutifully attended when he was a toddler. White moms, black hair. I'm too old for that. Is he? He's only 11. No, 12, she corrects herself. Almost 13, next month. Can it have been that long since the end of the world? Time dilates and blurs. Acting then, or con artists. Con artists, that's cool, he concedes. 
She takes a step back, evaluates the look. The slogan picked up in pink glitter over the faded palm tree design reads, it's how we do and California. Except the W has come off, so it reads ho instead of how. Or maybe that was intentional, even in the 12 to 14 year old section. The slim fit jeans make his legs look even more gangly than usual. He's shut up, that gawky phase of being all limbs. When did that happen? She checks Devin's watch, too big on her wrist and hard to read the numbers between the constellations engraved on the face. An astronomical anniversary gift, engraved on the back, all the time in the universe with you. Except that turned out to be a big, fat lie. I mean, I would have preferred not to die horribly of man plague, just saying. Focus, the numerals, 6.03 in the morning. 48 minutes since she found Billy hauling Miles, his slumped body into the back of the larder. 48 minutes since she picked up the tire iron. Don't think about it. Yeah, okay, Dev. Ain't nobody got time for that. The SUV was exactly where it was supposed to be, in the parking lot of the nearby deserted mall, where their abandoned getaway car would blend in with all the other forlorn vehicles. She and Billy had gone over the plan again and again. She was so impressed by her sister's foresight, the attention to detail, bust out, switch cars, drive to San Francisco. The keys were under the hubcap, gas tank filled, supplies in a lockbox under the back seat, water, change of clothing, first aid kit. Cole did it all on autopilot, wired and dumb with terror, covered in blood. Except she drove the SUV in the opposite direction to the one they planned, away from the coast and Billy's rich benefactors who had set up the whole thing. Inland, towards the desert. The route less traveled, less obvious, less likely to lead them straight into a waiting roadblock and woman with machine guns. Racking up the felony charges over here. They'll take him away from her, for good this time, arrest her, throw away the key, or worse. Is the death penalty a thing again in the current climate? What with the reprohibition accord to preserve life? Reckless endangerment of a male citizen is probably the worst crime. Worse even than what happened with Billy back there. 48, no, 49 minutes ago. She was so angry, so scared. I never liked that sister of yours. Mom, Miles says in the smallest voice, reeling her back from the memory, from going full panic stations. Sorry, Tiger, I got lost there for a moment. She holds his shoulders, admires his reflection, tries to smile. Looking good. Really? Sarcasm is healthy. Higher functioning, not brain damaged. You don't have to like it, but this is who you are. This is who you have to be right now. You're Mila. He flutters his thick eyelashes, purses his lips at the mirror. The duck face of contempt. Mila. She should get mascara, Cole thinks, distracted. Add it to the list. Food, money, gas shelter, probably another car. Keep switching them up. And then they can hit up the local Sephora for all the girly cosmetics a boy and drag could require. Wash your hands. You don't want to get sick. I'm immune, remember? Tell that to all the other viruses out there. Wash your hands, tiger. When she cracks open the dented door to the outside world, there are no drones, no choppers, 
No sirens. No woman in Kevlar with semi-automatics surrounding the perimeter. They haven't found them. Yet. And the SUV is still parked where she left it. Under the shade cloth. Ready to go. All clear. She hustles him towards the car. Sorry, her. Get it right. She can't afford to make a mistake. Any more mistakes. Miles clambers into the vehicle obediently. She's so grateful that he's going with the flow, not asking questions yet, because she'll break if he does. You should lie down, Cole says. They'll be looking for two people. But where are we going, Mom? Home. The idea is ridiculous. Thousands of miles, whole oceans, and now multiple felonies between them and ever seeing Johannesburg again. But we gotta lay low in the meantime. She says as much for her own benefit as much as his, hers. On the run, like outlaws, her daughter says, trying to rally. Even better than con artists, cowgirl Cole and Mila the kid. Isn't it really the kid? Won't she be mad I took her name? You're holding on to it until she catches up to us. Think of it as a joint custody. That's not how names work. Hey, last I checked, end of the world means normal rules don't apply. Levity is defense mechanism. Discuss. Mom, where is Billy? I don't remember what happened. Shit. She, she got in a fight with one of the guards when we were leaving. Too glib. She can't look at him. Sorry, her. That's why my shirt was messed up, but don't worry, she's fine. She's gonna catch up with us, okay? Okay, Mila says, frowning. And it's not, not really, but it's what they've got. They peel away from the gas station. The sky over Napa is a pastel blue with dry paintbrush swipes of cloud over vineyards run wild. Pale fields of grass twitch and shiver in the wind. These things make the fact of a murder distant and unseemly. Beauty allows for plausible deniability. Maybe that's beauty's entire function in the world, Cole thinks, that you can blind yourself with it. Okay, I think I still have some time, so I'm going to read another chapter. Uh, it's sh a shorter one. Give me a second. Chapter three, Black Hole Sun, Billy. A pale balloon in the blurry dark. No, not that. It's the moon shining right into her skull. Light like a drill bit. Mechanical wolves howling into the night. Fuck, fuck's sake, ow. Billy opens her eyes. Not a pale balloon, nor the moon. A spotlight with a fuzzed halo. Too bright. Alarms howling, not wolves. Hey, can someone shut that racket off? Her lips sound out the words, but she can't hear herself speak. Too much noise. She pushes herself up off the concrete. Not an ideal place to take a quick nap. Wouldn't be the first time she's gutted out. But she hasn't been blackout drunk for... When was the last time... Barcelona, with Raphael and the gang, all of them off their tits. Couldn't even remember seeing Nick Cave play. What did they take? She can't think through the noise. Will someone make those fucking wolves shut up? 
Sitting up is hotter than she anticipated. She might still be drunk. Fuck, her head. Worse than a hangover. What the hell did they take? She touches the back of her skull where it hurts. Wet. A wet flap. The bile and the darkness rise up at the same time. She pukes onto the concrete, a hot and sour mush. That could be a Nick Cave song, The Bile and the Darkness. She's not going to succumb to the black hole sun swimming across her vision. No, that's someone else, another band. Not how the lyrics go. And she's going to stand up. And she's not going to touch her head again, where the nerves are screaming in protest. But she does. She can't help it. The ground rushes up to her, working with the darkness now. Hey, no fair, no teamwork. She falls onto her knees, scuffs them through her jeans, catches herself, brace position, on all fours, doggy style, because you're about to get fucked. Get up, you stupid cow, you dumb bitch, get up. There's warmth down her back, soaking through her shirt. That's going to leave a stain. The alarms are still droning. Not Barcelona, the place where coal is. What's it called? Asphyxia? The billionaire hideout wine farm bunker. She's in the mechanics workshop among the cars. There's a tire iron lying on the ground in a dark smear of blood, like the puddles of cosmetic samples on the beauty pages in a magazine. This season's hottest nail polish color, head wound red. And where is Cole? Gone. Gone with Miles in their getaway car. All her careful planning. It was her idea, her resources. She came to find them. And now, left her for dead. Left her for dust. Billy leans back against the wall, still not upright. Shouldn't be standing for this. Might fall again. She tucks in her chin and a fresh pulse of blood runs down the side of her neck. Grits her teeth. Probes the meaty edge of the flap. Careful. Hurts like a mother. Her stomach lurches, vision blurs, a low moan torn from her mouth, answering the sirens. She holds fast, waits out the nausea, those black hole suns. Another moan. Animal self-pity. Clumps of hair, sharp bits against her fingertips. She brings her hand to her face to look, little black pits in the blood of her fingers, which is shockingly red. Gravel, not bone shards, not a broken skull. Not that bad, but not good either. Okay, get up, get moving. They'll be coming to see what happened. But gravity is against her. Join the club, she thinks, furious with Cole. Some high tragedy level betrayal. The sirens are her own Greek chorus, howling sorrow and outrage. She's up, shaky, but on her feet. Fuck you, gravity. How long was she out? It feels like minutes. She steadies herself against a Bentley, no keys in the ignition. All the keys are locked away in the main building. In the faint moonlight, the compound is a windowless expanse, solid and fortressed, locked down. Any potential threat in the heavy steel security shutters will slam down. She's been through the drills, twice already, since she got here two and a half months ago, although usually she's on the inside. Impenetrable, bulletproof, shockproof, airtight, in case of terrorist attack, like what happened in Singapore. No, Malaysia. And Poland, wasn't it? Bombing the last remaining men to death? Any number of triggers will set it off, including, but not limited to, someone breaking through the fences. It stops invaders getting in. Not so great at people leaving. 
but the car, the la-di-da, that's not right. Lada, ataraxian, not asphyxia. Cole took the fucking car. After all the orchestration to make it seem like a toothless, broken thing. Trojan horse's getaway vehicle. She was impressed with her sister's duplicity and new mechanical skills. A missing distributor cap, a disconnected fuel hose. You don't need keys when you can hotwire. Anyone could have picked up on that if they'd been looking. They weren't. But now they will be. All for nothing. There has to be another way out. She could walk. Simply stroll through the break in the fence where Cole would have busted through per the plan. Her plan. Worked out with painstaking care. The white SUV waiting in the mall parking lot so they could switch cars like pros. Mrs. Amato's going to be so pissed. All her investment, all the trouble she went to, and the time and money, getting Billy in here, setting everything up to bust them out of here. The great boy heist of 2023. All for fucking naught. Screw you, Cole, and your short-sighted, prudish bullshit. The alarms are still going. Her ears are ringing. And a car is coming up the drive. She can see the headlights. She squints against the beams, not her sister, unless Cole has hijacked one of the patrol cars. Blue sweeps of light stammering on top. She stoops to pick up the tire iron, holding it low at her side as the security vehicle comes towards her. She slumps against the wall dramatically, sincerely. She's not sure she'll be able to get up again. Her blood run downs, runs down the back of her neck along her arm. Drip, drip, drip. The car pulls up beside her, long seconds while the driver waits, making a decision. Hurry up, she thinks. We got a woman bleeding over here. And then the guard gets out leaving the door standing open, the interior light on, so she can see that she's holding her gun low and at the ready in both hands, the fish gape of her mouth. It's one of the young ones. She knows all the guards by name has baked them goddamn cookies. She has shared cigarettes with this one before. Marcy or Macy or Michaela or something. Why can't she get her words right? Oh my God, Marcy, Macy, Michaela says. Billy, Billy, what's happened? You're bleeding. What's good for the goose, she thinks, and using all her strength, she swings the tire iron up and around, cracking it down onto Marcy, Macy, Michaela's wrists. The girl howls in agony. The gun skitters across the concrete, ends up somewhere under a car. She can't see where the hell it's gone. Marcy, Macy, Michaela clutches her wrist against her chest and sobs as much an outrage as pain. You broke my arm. Shut up, Billy says. Shut the fuck up. She's got enough strength to go looking for the gun or get in the car. Not both. I have your gun, she bluffs. I'll shoot you. Shut the fuck up. Get on the floor. Hands behind your head now. You broke my arm. Why did you break my arm? Fucking now, bitch. Get down. Hands behind your head. A rush of dizziness. Blood loss. She needs to get to a hospital. She needs to get out of here. Marcy Macy Michaela is crying harder as she gets down onto the ground. She says something unintelligible through the sobs. Billy doesn't want any more fucking noise. Shut up or I'll shoot you, bitch. But that's not her jam. Dodgy deals, smooth operations, getting rare goods to the people willing to pay for them. Sure, 
What's the harm? She's not a murderer, though. Even if right now she'd like to make an exception for her fucking cunt of a sister who ruined everything. Everything. Behind your head, she yells. I'm doing it, the woman whimpers, lacing her hands on top of her head, or trying to. One arm is definitely broken. She was asking for it. Billy slinks into the driver's seat, keys in the ignition, motor running, steering wheel on the wrong side of the damn car. Fuck, fucking Americans. Why the fuck do these people drive on the wrong side of the car, wrong side of the road? Fucking imperial. Imperialists. Huh. The gears stick, high-pitched grating, clutch. Put the clutch in, remember? Get it into reverse. The car jumps backwards so abruptly she slams on the brakes. Her head jolts, nausea and that feeling of everything closing in around her. Tunnel vision, all her options narrowing. First gear, more grating. Keep your fucking head down, she yells out the window at Marcy Macy Michaela, who is craning her neck, or I'll shoot you. And then the gears catch and she's driving away. She's doing it, making her getaway. The car scrapes the wall, but Billy doesn't care because she's free. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds great. That's I, I had forgotten just how much swearing was in that particular chapter, so I'm sorry. I don't all the problems. We love swearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that was good. Thank you. That was great. Uh, you can get Afterland at the link below, um, IndieBound or Amazon or your favorite bookseller. And uh, I think it cut out uh, at the beginning of Usman's reading, but uh, Midnight Doorways, Fables from Pakistan, you can get here at this link. Uh, it's in the YouTube description as well. So uh, yeah, we're gonna do um, a Q&A with both authors. Uh, if you have questions that you wanna ask them, uh, think of some, some good ones. Um, Ellen, you wanna start with some questions? Sure, sure. okay. Um, Lauren, I'll start with you. Uh, how did you go about imagining a world without men? What research did you do? You, actually, great. Well, you said women, and I said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> I was like, no, it's men. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's really interesting. Uh, when I first started talking about it with, with friends, uh, how many people had kind of, you know, the patriarchy is deeply entrenched and, and you know, internal sex and misogyny is deep too. Because, you know, I started talking about it and a lot of women, um, including like some fierce feminist friends I know, uh, would say things like, oh, great. What do you think we're going to do with like the stadiums? And I was like, well, the women's teams might actually get to play and might actually get televised and more attention than they would otherwise. Um, but I just I had a series of conversations with basically everyone I met. Uh, I went uh, as research. I went onto a container ship and I spoke to the captain. I was like, what would happen if all the men died tomorrow? what would happen in your industry and um he's like no it, it wouldn't be a problem like the ships are basically on autopilots and you can train up like sailors pretty easily but where you would struggle is the pilots who come into when you come into harbor um because they're such cowboys they're hard drinking um there's a real kind of macho culture there and they're the only ones who know how to get you safely into port yes but uh, women do that without being macho cowboys they could be taught sure, <laughs> but, but you have to know you have to know where the rocks are and you have to understand and that a lot of that is not something that you can it's not a manual for like how to get into harbor and women just aren't in those roles 
Um, so of course they would be competent in that if they were given the chance to um, actually yeah. train. Yeah. But yeah. but it was also interesting this idea of um, and I know I, there was some talk at the time where I started writing the book about this Amazon show called The Wilds, which is kind of a um, a Lord of the Flies with girls. And there was a lot of joking at the time that this deal was announced where people were like, oh, Lord of the Flies with girls, what are they going to do? Make each other friendship bracelets? And that's such a narrow definition of woman. And, and it ignores the fact that women are full people and they were just as capable of terrible, like selfishness and evil, you know, from the previous Trump administration. And how great is it to be able to say that? The previous Trump administration? Um, you know, there are a lot of women in, in, in roles in government who are just absolutely awful. And the idea that women are benign or kind or more compassionate um, is not a natural fit. And one of the most telling uh, instances I had was when I was hanging out with um, Cape Town Metro police officers. And I was hanging out with a black woman detective and her white male partner. And we were going to some very kind of hectic gang areas. Um, and we actually met the leader of one of the Cape Town's gangs, which I know you guys will love this. It's called the Americans. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I said to them, I was like, what would happen if, uh, you know, again, what would happen if all the men died tomorrow? What would happen with gangsterism and drugs and policing and, and social problems? And they're like, are you kidding? Like that stuff's not going to magically go away overnight. It's, um, and actually when Mama American ran the Americans, she was more hardcore. She was more brutal. She was more ruthless because she had more to prove. And that was a really interesting idea. And that was something I really wanted to play with in the book is seeing women as full human being. And yes, there's an anarchist community that is working towards socialism and they've seized a whole bunch of hotel room keys and they're kind of creating public housing. But there is also, there are also women just doing absolutely re reprehensible things who are getting involved in boy trafficking and sperm trafficking. I never thought I'd write so much about semen in my entire <laughs> life. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so I really wanted to kind of ex explore that full world of like what it would mean in this world without men um, and what industries what would be affected, but also how women are capable of being, mm -hmm. doing all the good in the world, but also all the evil. Right. Yes, we would be able to walk home alone at night and that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you want to ask Lisbon a question? Sure. Um, I First of all, I, I really love the the descriptions in, in your story. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your inspiration for the story you read tonight? Um, sure, thanks for asking. So, you know, I, so uh, last year, was it last year? I feel like 10 years ago, um, I was at a workshop with uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly Link and Karen Joy Fowler. And, you know, we were talking about fairy tales and Kelly mentioned something about fairy tale, it, adjacent stories that are not retellings. I've never been a fan of retellings. I mean, writing retellings myself. And so, you know, I started thinking about fairy tales and their um, contemporary usage. And it occurred to me that the Arabian Nights, I haven't seen a lot of retellings of the Arabian Nights or fairy tales set in the Arabian Nights milieu, um, you know, written by people from that culture. So um, the Wandering City basically is an Arabian night story called the City of Brass. It's supposed to be the most mystical of the Arabian night stories. It's heavily uh, sophistic in its approach. And so I, I started wondering what would happen if the city, the original story goes that these travelers go into the mountains because they're supposed to bring back a gin bottle 
so a bottle with the gin corked up inside. And so these travelers go to the city of Brass and they, and they travel to find these bottles. And on the way, they find the city with people petrified in it forever. Um, people, uh, a city lost forever in time. And so I wondered what would happen if I brought the city to Pakistan? How would Pakistanis react to it? And so that, that's, that's kind of how the story went about. And I was really laughing because when the story first came out, I got so many people saying, this is exactly what the prime minister would do. <laughs> it's, his, it's his tagline. His tagline is, don't worry. Don't worry at all. Everything will be fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. You know, it's kind of, yeah. So people really laughed, you know, when I, when I got people just lots of laugh emojis saying that that particular line cracked them up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Are you working on a novel by any chance? Um, yes and no. Um, I, uh, I started working on a novel mid pandemic uh, because, you know, hey, the world's ending. Why not? So um, I, I got about 20,000 words in and then I sort of got stuck because I'm a, an, fortunately and unfortunately, I'm a medical doc and it really eats up a lot of my time. Um, and so it's hard to find that mental space because when you're writing a novel, I think you really live with it. It sort of lives on your skin and within it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's hard to do that when you have pa patients dying and you have COVID worries and you're going to the hospital and you're taking a shower when you get back. So it really threw me off, but I'm hoping to return to it next month. Okay, cool. Uh, Lauren, I have a question for you. So you wrote, you, you said you wrote this book pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, looking through one now. Uh, what are some of the things that you got right and some of the things you got wrong? Um, so the virus in my in my book is completely fictional, it, but it does it affects um, men and it, uh, and it causes very aggressive prostate cancer. Um, but I didn't. Yeah, so so it's very very unlikely, but it is based on kind of oncoviruses, which are things like HPV, which you know obviously cause cervical cancer, which is an STI. Um, so it was just kind of interesting to play with that idea, but I didn't anticipate just how much people would be willing to throw themselves into harm's way. Um, I I never would have guessed that people would be storming into supermarkets and restaurants, refusing to wear masks. Um, and, and, and actually my virus kills people within three to six months because I needed it to, because I didn't anticipate that people wouldn't actually respond well and do what's good for the greatest social good to look after everyone else. And that's been very dispiriting, you know, kind of people welcoming the zombies essentially. <laughs> um, but it did mean that I masked up early, you know, so I finished the book in November, 2019, that was final edits. And, um, by March 2020, when I, the announcements were coming and we were getting the news about this, I was like, I need to get a mask right now. Um, and so, so that was really interesting. But it, and also interesting with the real life virus is um, that it does apparently affect men worse than women and men die more. And also it does affect male fertility, which is really, really interesting. So that feels a little bit uncanny, but I've also had a lot of people comment on, there's an airport scene um, where hand sanitizer is sold out and there's a line about how you just, you can't imagine how much the world can change in three months or six months. You just can't. And a lot of people have like, you know, glommed onto that and been like, oh, this is prescient. And I'm like, I really wish it hadn't been. It's horrible. I'd much rather not be living. I'd much rather this was not relevant. 
But I also just have to emphasize that the book is post-pandemic. It's about the aftermath, the afterland. Um, so there's not a lot of, this isn't contagion. This isn't, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time languishing in, in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Lauren, may I ask a question? Yeah, please. Is there a Trump-like figure in the book? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I like to tell more personal stories. Uh, there's, you know, Miles is not the chosen one. He's not Harry Potter. He's not Jesus. He's not going to save the world with his sperm alone. Um, there are, you know, that's why there are 35 million men left in the world. So I don't get too much into the kind of the politics, but it was interesting to think about global, what would be happening globally. You know, for example, in the book, the, you know, uh, woman president of Colombia, now everyone's woman president. She was like, listen, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to stop coffee exports to America until you legalize drugs because we're done with the narco trade. We've had so many people die and just the most horrendous gender-based violence and murders and terrible crime, and we're not going through that anymore. So either you guys finish the war on drugs or you're never going to get your sweet, sweet caffeine. And, yeah, so it was interesting to, like, kind of play with how different places would have different ideas. And South Africa, for example, as well, would be, would be I think, would be better off than the, than the states, for example, because we have a very good constitution. Um, it's very progressive. And we have a lot of women-led households already. Um, so I think, you know, we'd probably be better adapted to a world without men. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a great uh, tie-in question um, from Kay Francis Leader. Um, Kay says, I love the way both of you write such culturally specific work, but also make it legible to a universal audience. How do you think about translating your own cultural context for your, for your audience? Uh, let's start with Usman. Do you want to uh, lead with that one? Sure. Um, you know, I began writing in 2012. Um, I did not write before that. Um, and when I first started writing out, my one of my biggest difficulties was finding editors who really would be able to see past some of the cultural nuances and not ask me to remove them. And I did run into that for maybe about maybe about a year. And after that, you know, I started realizing somehow that I was okay to go as cultural as I wished. And then I got lucky because uh, I met Ellen and Ellen bought one of my novellas. And the one thing I really enjoyed working with Ellen about was while she's really stringent about revision, um, she did not force me to remove cultural nuances. In fact, she asked me to explore them more. However, sort of we did have some, all right, go on. I'll, you know, let me continue on that. <laughs> tangentially. <laughs> we did have yeah. some butting of heads in one of your stories. Um, one of the recently, I can't remember, um, because you were using words that in, I have, I'm happy. I want my writers to use their culture, culture, but I also want to make sure that American readers who are the biggest audience for most of my stuff can comprehend what's going on. If it's in context, that's no problem. If it's no, if there's no context, I remember there were a few words. I said, I have no idea what this means. You said you could look it up. I said, you don't I'm looking it up in the middle of reading your goddamn story. You know? <laughs> so I can't remember. I think finally you might've given in on something and then you didn't on something else, but you know, sometimes, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important for editors to encourage that. I mean, that's crucial to every, you know, we want, other voices. I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, that's okay. 
it's uh, it's it's kind of you know nice for I'm, I'm sure that readers or aspiring writers it's it's important for them to listen into a conversation like this because it uh, especially writers from marginalized populations and POC writers because you know at the end of the day we're in a world where you can literally click on a on a highlight a word and you could Google it <laughs> so if I can look up I don't know I mean whatever weird French or Latin uh, phrase is going to be in a story why not why can't they look up Urdu you know so um, I, I I have been a, you know able to do it and I've gotten to a point where I'm confident enough that the cultural nuance um, I think I think it should be done in a way by writers to invite other people in without exot exoticizing either culture mm. um, and um, I guess that's my answer. I'm going who, to is, who, your, who is your audience? I mean, that's important to decide as a writer. Do you want to reach a lot of people or do you want to reach a smaller group? And that is a lot of, and this is for not just for people who are writing in and out of a culture, but for any writer, any new writer, who is your audience? Who do you want to reach is very important. One thing I, is it happening and really, really fast finally is that um, stories with 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 words that we would say were foreign let's okay let's say it's something published in america and it's like let's say it's one of your stories Usman, and you're using language in the past we would italicize that to show that it's not english right that has changed completely in the last two years two or three years most at least in short fiction most editors are leaving they're not translations it's like it's if it's from their point of view is from the that country's point of view it's not foreign it's their own language so that has changed dramatically in the last year or two i find yeah i think it's great to see you know um words that are in urdu or in spanish or in afrikaans or zulu that are not italicized yeah. um that you know especially if it's that if it's that character's pov i think it's essential to treat that as uh just part and of the language normal is nat natural Absolutely, definitely. Uh, Lauren, do you uh, do you want to uh, take a crack at that question? How do you think about translating your own cultural context for your audience? So my first two books, Moisiland and Zoo City, are set in South Africa. And I just want to answer John Kwok's uh, point earlier where he said it feels very kind of um, much a response to William Gibson's um, Neuromancer and, and I actually haven't, hadn't read Neuromancer at the time. It was much more influenced by kind of Jeff Noon and 2000 AD, the comic. Um, but, but yeah, so those are very South African, very culturally specific. There's a lot of slang and, um, and I do provide, I do try to provide context. Um, I, more so in Zoo City because I wrote Marcy Lamb for a South African audience. Um, with Zoo City, I, I had an international book deal and I knew that I was writing. Uh, for Americans and people in the UK as well. So just like, you know, half a sentence just to give some context to explain what it is. Of course, if you're a South African reading it, you'll get much more nuance, there's much more kind of richness and depth and and kind of cultural winks. And, and that's kind of fun is that there are these Easter eggs hidden inside all my books um, for South Africans. And the last three have been said in America, but I, I always bring in strands of South Africa. And I think what's interesting about writing about America as a South African and I lived there for two years, so I have some experience. Um, and I do a lot of research trips and talking to people and, and then also asking them to read it and make sure that I'm getting things right. Um, 
is that I come with this outsider's perspective, but I also come with a South African perspective. And as a South African, having grown up under the apartheid state, which was this horrifying racist regime, which murdered people, there were assassination hit squads, there was a chemical weapons program specifically trying to do things like um, make black people infertile. It was just absolutely horrendous. And, and a lot of people like don't actually realize the extent of how bad it was. But growing up under that as a child of like the 80s and 90s, I grew up in utopia as a white kid. And my parents were politically active, so that was helpful. Um, and that gave me a different perspective. And I grew up with a black brother. But I come to all my work and I come to my understanding of other places with this perspective, with this kind of very high-keyed sense of social justice, of racism, of the underlying tensions, of how we're haunted by history. And so that South African context for me, I hope makes my writing richer and more interesting. Definitely. Um, so can you tell us a little bit uh, what it was like writing Billy Cole's charming narcissist sister who's the villain of the book? Um, Billy was so much fun to write. Um, and it was interesting because I struggled, this book took me so long, it took five years to write. I was also doing other projects in between. But, um, oh my God. And part of that was because I kept trying to make the villain a man. First it was Miles's baby daddy who shows up again and wants to claim his son. Then it was like, you know, Cole's incompetent brother, kind of, you know, the, the page boy to the patriarchy, I guess. And it just wasn't working. And I was like, no, if, if this doesn't work, why in a world without men are we, do we now have two major male characters, the son and like the dad slash brother? And Billy was waiting in the wings. And she and eventually I started writing her and she kind of stepped up and she was like, well, fucking finally. Um, you can tell the bitch from that scene. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was so fun. And it was also really interesting. And, and my publishers pushed back a little bit. They're like, well, you know, what was the underlying incident that made her this way? And I'm like, narcissists don't need an underlying incident. You know, she is just she's awful. Like she's completely self-centered. She's always been a hustler. She's always been out for herself. And it's been since childhood that she just, she doesn't have that compassion. She can't see other people's perspective. Um, that's not to say that she's just kind of a really shallow character, but having dealt with narcissists in my own life, I think it's really interesting to be able to just play with that and to not have a reason. Are you pointing at yourself, Matthew? Are you a narcissist? No, I've, I've dealt with narcissists. I don't think <laughs> But we, I, have, we had one in the White House for four years. Yeah. Oh, God, exactly. Absolutely. You know, and there's, you know, was there an inciting incident or is he just a monster, you know? And, and, well, as well, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And I was talking to The Guardian recently. They, they did a Halloween special on like the scariest person you've ever written about in your novels. And I was like, it's probably Billy because, you know, time traveling serial killer or someone who's connected with like an art demon are not people we're going to run into in our normal lives, but we are going to run into narcissists and they leave this just wake of devastation and, and horror behind them. Yeah. Uh, it can really destroy people's lives, can lead to emotional abuse or, you know, 400,000 deaths in America. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> uh, so <Right>. subject. <laughs> yeah. We could have, I could talk more about that in, in greater detail, but uh, let, let's ask uh, Usman a question. Um, can you tell me, um, is there something that draws you particularly to short stories? 
Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what you know, is pretty broad question, but yeah. So you know, I when I started writing, I <laughs> I wrote a one hundred and fifty thousand word novel that then I trunked because I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And um, I maybe someday I'll return to it. Maybe I won't. But you know, once I got into short fiction, one of the things about it—I mean, we have, we've talked about this. There, I mean, eight—they're satisfying. You quick, you can write them. You're done. They get published, and you know, you're on on the on your way to the next one. But particularly for Pakistan, what I found was that if I did short fiction, I could explore themes, so many themes, so many niche stories that have got lost over time. and i could do it quickly and i could touch upon it and if it failed it failed i could just abandon the project and move on to the next one um so i just sold a story uh, yesterday morning that i wrote on deadline because i had challenged myself to finish a story because i had not been writing for a while and um it's a story about uh, development and encroachment in coastal karachi um so the pakistani government there are two islands in in the arabian sea that the pakistani government is trying to bid off to the highest sell off to the highest bidder and there are indigenous populations on those islands there are people who've depended them on them for 2000 years so i wanted to write a story about that and it became a horror slash dark fantasy story and um it it and i i wrote it only because i was on a deadline if i wasn't i would, wouldn't have done it because my time is i work about 50 hours a week of medicine alone Mm-hmm. um so that's one of the things that draw me is the draws me the other thing is with short stories i can try different forms and voices and i love trying different voices it just it, it, it just, i just love it i mean that's one of the things i love about short fiction is i can completely put on the shoes and skin of a different um uh, uh person and a different uh, gender or different character and it just just completely love it and the last one is time time constraints <laughs> Who's I'm sorry, Ellen. Story. Can you say who's bought the new story yet or not? Not yet. It's uh, I'm not supposed to. <laughs> not yet. On sale. Um, is the publisher in the United States or? Yes. Okay. Uh, congrats on that. Thank uh, you. So I haven't really seen many questions in the in the. You don't write much short fiction, do you? Uh, I've got a short story collection, um, and I just did a short story or a couple of short stories for this really cool climate change oh. project, um, where it's kind of imagining the next fifty years, and you kind of had you had to do rip from the headlines, BuzzFeed style articles mm-hmm. um, across different timelines, and that was really fun to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so actually, I have I have a short story set in Karachi, um, which oh, I spoke nice. to. I I spoke to I haven't been I'd love to go but um I I really worked it through with um a friend of mine Mavesh Murad who's an amazing editor herself um and she like fact checked and like and we we spoke on the phone and we talked through like kind of the details so I I I'm going to send it to you I'll be interested to see what you think of it So Mavesh Mavesh is a very good friend of mine um she um I was in the anthology The Gin Falls in Love Right yes uh, oh of course you were <laughs> and um uh Mavish and I sort of go back way back to 2012 she's great she's great she's wonderful she's really really good well uh get your questions in if you're watching us live on the live chat uh now's your chance cuz we're uh, we're coming up to the end of the broadcast um 
Do you guys have questions for each other? It's always interesting. Um, Osman, um, sorry, no, I'm, I'm brain dead because I, I had something that I lost it. It's the 2 a.m. thing. You go. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is 3 in the morning. So, Lauren, I really loved Shining Girls. I'm curious, so as a novelist, uh, someone who's, you know, done long form, are you more comfortable with long form in general? Is it something that um, comes naturally to you or do you find that it's really hard to plot through the, the structure and trying to put things together? Because I'm, I have a little bit of a scatterbrain and for me, in, envisioning things and trying to bring them together is difficult. Uh, all writing is difficult and always more than I anticipated than when I sit down and start doing it. And short stories, I'm always like, oh, no, a short story would be easy. No, short stories, it's a, it's an incredibly difficult, complicated form. It's not just a quick and easy thing that you throw out. It's a real work of, like, patience and craft and trying to contain something in a very small space. But, yeah, writing novels, I think, is probably my most natural form. But... Um, I'm trying to get into more script writing because I really enjoy doing dialogue. And for a while, I was the head writer on um, uh, on South Africa's first animated TV show. And that was so much fun. And that actually taught me a lot about writing generally because it's a 24-minute show. It's four kids. You can't mess around. Someone has to draw everything that you are writing. So your descriptions have to be on point. Your dialogue has to work really hard. You get into and out of the scene as fast as possible. So that was really fun and like really helpful. And I also just love being in a writer's room and working with other writers. That's kind of just my favorite thing. Um, but yeah, novels, all writing does not come naturally. It's hard work and I have to park myself in the chair and then just bleed all over the keyboard. <laughs> novellas. I mean, they're not novels, but they're very complicated and they often twist around. Your most recent one for me. Um, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, so they're very, they're like matryoshka dolls, some of them, matryoshka mm -hmm. dolls, whatever they're called, you know, little Russian dolls that have innards, you know, and I, so, I mean, you seem to be able to keep things straight. I mean, that's complicated. That kind of thing is very complicated. I would think a novel wouldn't be more complicated, just more spread out. <laughs> I'm not a novel editor and I don't want to edit novels because they are too, I have edited novels. I don't like it. I don't feel like it's my, not my skill set. I prefer, you know, I probably could get practice in it and get better at it, but I definitely prefer the shorter form. Here's a question from Amy, mm -hmm. Goldschlager. Amy has a question. Uh, Usman, how does your medical experience influence your fiction? Um, thank you for asking, Amy. Uh, Ellen, I'm going to talk a little bit about the novella part because that is, a, I've always thought it interesting. So I do think long form, I have these arcs in my head and these big climaxes that happen. So I, so the, the big picture thing comes to me naturally. It's the putting together of it that I find difficult. Uh, because when, as you mentioned, the Popper Prince and the Eucalyptus Jinn and the City of Red Midnight, they both have these weird, twisted, complicated mm -hmm. um, things, the pieces that come together. So if it's so difficult to do it in novelette and novella length, I don't know how I'm going to do that at 100,000 words. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm just intimidated by this idea of putting all these things together. Well, it doesn't need to be structured the same way. Your Those two novellas are structured a certain way 
with stories within stories within stories. Your novel does not have to do that, you know, because <laughs> that would make it difficult for you. You can also forward. I'm sorry. So what's the saving grace for me is using the writing software Scrivener because yeah. it allows you, it's got this corkboard feature. You can actually see your whole plot like kind of laid out. And also generally I have like a wall with, with my entire story kind of, you know, all the chapters and like different things so I can physically get up and move it around. And that's again, something I learned from working in TV. Although I know a lot of writers do that. I just had to learn it through TV, but, but you should write a novel. You absolutely should. It is, it is a nightmare. Write a novel. Just write short fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I am working on the novel. Um, I'm about 20,000 words in, and the problem is, like, as usual, I've made my life really difficult. So the novel is basically, it's about a, it's a haunted house novel, but it's set in a, it, it's set peri-pandemic. And so, um, and it, it has these twisted rooms that become stories themselves. So oh, my that, God. Yeah, so it's a very complicated structure, which is why it's going to take me time. But I'm sorry, I'm going to get to Amy's question. I apologize, Amy. Uh, okay, for... but I love this house novel because that sounds amazing. Thank you. I hope that I can finish it someday. Um, so Amy asks, how does your medical experience influence your fiction? You know, it's it's weird. I have these two brains. So I go to work. Uh, a reader of mine, a friend of mine, she basically, uh, I was telling her that, you know, I was giving a patient an injection in the knee. And 20 minutes later, she left and I was working on a short story desperately trying to make a deadline. And she was like, that's got to be weird. <laughs> you're doing these injections and you're seeing these patients. But, you know, interestingly, some of the stories that I do tend to come very naturally because of the medical experience. I have a story called Resurrection Points. It's about this kid who can necromance dead flesh and it has neurovascular bundles and it has true anatomy. I drew, I drew experience from my own uh, experience as a, I'm sorry, I draw, uh, drew experience from my uh, medical school dissection lab when I was 21. So I was at this workshop with uh, with Neil, uh, with Neil Gaiman, and, you know, we were talking about this, and I said I was 18 when I dissected my first dead person, and Lily, E. Lily Yu was there, and she was like, write that story as a first line, and I'll read the fuck out of it. <laughs> and that's how that story came about. So, yeah, so sometimes it does work, sometimes it doesn't. Hmm. However, do you find it helps? Go ahead, Sorry, do, you, do you find it helps having a day job that isn't writing? So that then writing becomes like you know the thing that you carve time out for that you're actually looking forward to? Or is it or do you also find writing hard? Is it is it a joy or is it a slog? So sometimes it's a joy and sometimes it's a slog. But um I do find recently because I'm I'm not working just part-time or working pretty much full-time, especially in Pakistan. So in Pakistan, yeah. you don't work just like an eight to five thing. You work eight to three, and then you work from five to 10 in the evening. Wow. So yeah, so I am right now working two or two, two and a half jobs a day in medicine. And then I'm trying to write these stories in the, I don't know, midnight hours. So I really do wish that I had more time and I will eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but that draws you, draw, that does tend to sap me a little bit. Uh, we have a question from Joseph R. Kennedy. Do both or either of you enjoy conventions and gathering gatherings of writers when we aren't in COVID? And if so, which were the most fun? Lauren, do you go to conventions? Yeah, I do. And that's actually, that was career changing for me as a South African was, um, you know, I went to Worldcon in Toronto mm -hmm. and I really couldn't afford it. I, you know, I was, I was kind of, 
you know, when, you, when you're at the breakfast buffet and you're kind of stealing the muffins into your bag. Um, but I met, I met some amazing other writers who've been really great about my, my uh, supporting my work. I met editors. I got into comics because I met Bill Willingham, who writes fables and created fables. And he insisted that I go see his editor at Vertigo Comics uh, in New York. And so it's, it's made a major difference to me. And I love writers' festivals. I love kind of being this kind of in this cross-genre space so that I can do the Harrogate Crime Festival in the UK, but then I can also do the Sydney Festival or I could do something like um, uh, Design in Darbo in Cape Town, which is this huge design and technology conference. And But I think my favorite festival, because it's also my home, home ground festival, is the Open Book Festival, which is linked to my favorite indie bookstore in the world. Again, home territory. It's the Book Lounge in Cape Town. They can, if anyone does want a signed copy of my book, please email them. The shipping is exorbitant, but if you really want it, they can organize to get it to you. But the Open Book Festival, it's so pro progressive. It's so diverse. They have amazing writers coming in. It's based in the city, so it's really accessible um, because a lot of the more literary festivals, especially in South Africa, but I think this is probably true around the world, are frequented by middle-aged white women. And bless them, they're like the most amazing readership. But Open Book Festival, you've got so many young, black, queer kids in the crowd, and it's just, and the discussions that come out of it and, and the rawness and the connection is just absolutely wonderful. So if anyone gets a chance to come to the Open Book Festival, snap it up, it's just wonderful. And I'll take you on a tour around the coolest places in Cape Town. Usman, what about you? You go to cons? I I do. I, I must confess, uh, like Lauren, cons really did change, uh, were career changing for me. Um, and I actually met Ellen at uh, at a con. And um, I, I think I even sold that my was, novella. That was after we did the, um, it was you. Oh, you, that's right. One-on-one on one because you, that's for right. uh, KG, wasn't it, was it Fearful Symmetries or KGB fundraiser? No, I, I think it was the uh, Fearful Symmetries one. Yeah. You're right. We You're did right. a starter and he got a one-on, he, he got a one-on-one -on -one with me and that's how we met. And we talked for like hours on whatever the virtual chat was, Skype, I guess, probably. We Skype. I, I, think, I think it was Skype. Then we met, then we met it I, after the fact. I was actually writing uh, stories. So I was applying for the Clarion West workshop that year, and Ellen was one of the uh, people. And I was like, you know, here's a cheat I can do. I can actually ask her what she likes, and I can write a story based on that. But I had just finished a story, and I think, Ellen, you asked me in that Q&A to send it to you. And I sent it to you and say in, within 15 minutes, Ellen got back to me and said, I love the start, it's great, but you got to finish it and send it to Strange Horizons or whatever. I, I think it was one of the matters. Well, it, they, no, I never sold it. I ended up selling that one. And I think the ending was broken. I haven't returned to it. But then it was at ICFA that you bought the Popper Prince and Eucalyptus Gym. Really? And well, I remember that's where I met you in person. That, that's when it, yeah. It, I wrote that for uh, Gordon Van Gelder for the magazine of fantasy yeah. and science fiction. Okay. But you bought it and Gordon, <laughs> I never ended up submitting it to FNSF after. But anyway, yeah, cons really, um, I love them. I, I'm really missing them right now. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm getting that con withdrawal where I wanna go hang out with my friends, even if I end up running to my room after an hour of con, <laughs> of conning, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so that ability to be able to, um, 
connect with, you know, editors and people and, and to kind of build that personal relationship or journalists or um, readers. But it is also just the the wonder and joy of like being able to go to the green room or go to the bar um, or somewhere that's maybe yeah. more friendly yeah. to people who don't drink um, and just commune with other writers and just bitch, just bitch about like, oh, my God publishing is so messed up and writing is so hard and like how do you manage your day job and this other thing um and and also just kind of to just shop talk shop talk i really miss that yeah absolutely i, yeah. I miss yeah. it too yeah. i don't want to want to pick pick my brain <laughs> amy, amy wants to know when do you sleep <laughs> uh so well you know um i i was quite good about waking up really early in the morning last year i would get up at about six I, i'm a i'm a i'm a distance runner so i would get up at six in the morning i would go run like six miles and i would be set for the day and then i moved to pakistan and then this fucking pandemic happened and um right now i'm doing telemedicine in the u.s i i start at 7 p.m and i finish at about midnight I do about four to five hours um, every night, five nights a week. Wow. And it's thrown me completely because now I go to sleep at one or two in the morning and I wake up at 8.30, which for me is really late. I don't like that at all. Mm -hmm. So I, I was used to waking up at 5.30, 6 in the morning, get my workout out of the way and then, you know, meet the day head on. So right now I'm, I'm sleeping and I'm feeling lazy and fat <laughs> and uh, out of shape. But, you know, it's... Honestly, right now, I'm just grateful to have a job. Honestly, that's yeah. it's I can't even tell you how scary it was for three, four months when I uh, couldn't fly to the U.S. to do locums. And I did not have a telemedicine job at that time. So for three, four months, I was reliant on pretty much the income I made here, which in Pakistan is pretty much it's nothing when you compare it with the U.S. Because I lived there for 13 years. It was a, almost a, a 1 20th difference. Wow. Um, so we I, we were scared there, and I was really tense and anxious for a while. But happily, it's a little better. Um, and I actually made more money from writing in those three four months writing short fiction than I did as a medical doc. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Warren, you write full time, yes? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lauren. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I was wondering if Lauren wrote full time. Yeah, no, I write full time. Um, I think maybe that's also you know because because now it is my day job. It's just, um, did you used to not have, did you used to have a day job? Yeah, back in, but I haven't, I've been, I've been full-time writer since 2013 when I got the Shiny Girls book deal. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, okay. But I was wondering if the difference in your schedule, you know, but it's been so long, it doesn't matter. You know, if you had just started, if like if Usman stopped, working as a doctor and suddenly became a writer full-time wondered how that psychologically would affect him but you haven't but you've been doing writing only for such a long time you know but what i can't talk about i'm sorry what were you doing before you started writing full-time what kind of job um, did you do? i worked as a journalist for a very long time as a freelance journalist okay. um and then i was the head writer on this animated tv show for three okay. years okay. um which was the most fun but I found being a full-time writer what really helps me because I'm I'm an extroverted writer and I need people and I need to socialize and I need to be able to like feed off people. So the pandemic has been really hard. Not feed off them in a scary vampire way, but you know, just kind of recharge and connect and it's so exciting. Yeah. Um, so I actually would normally rent an office space 
Um, so it's been really tough without that and, and just have other people around and, you know, we're all very focused on our work, but then we'll have a coffee break and we'll watch a dumb YouTube video. And what I've started doing is I have a virtual writer's room with, um, two of my friends. One's also in Cape town. Another one is in uh, Cambridge and that's been life-saving is we log on in the morning. Like it's a, it's a, it's using the software whereby. So the rooms open all the time and you just sit there and you write and then occasionally somebody else will pop in. And it's very good for productivity because you see your friends like clacking away and you're like, oh God, yes, I'm also writing. I'm also writing. I'm not on Facebook, Cambridge, I swear. Or Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sorry, Cambridge, uh, UK. Yeah. Did you find that there was um, like a, a difficult mental shift when you went from having a full-time job to a full-time writer? Or I should, yeah, no, switch from, uh, you know, full, your previous full-time job? I think what I struggled with was I suddenly didn't have deadlines or is this kind of deadline that was very far away and very kind of nebulous, um, but also very scary because I'd had this huge book deal with the shiny girls and there was so much pressure. Um, so I found that really difficult to deal with. Whereas in my day job as a journalist, journalism was great because you're like on hectic deadline, you've got to like deliver. Um, and, and even with the animated TV show, you know, you've got a team of a hundred people waiting on your scripts um and and other people in the writers room you've got to like get through stuff and uh, and i work best under pressure so i really miss that and the kind of having to self-regulate has been it's difficult you know so it's about building in a routine it's about exercising first thing in the morning it's meditating I'm not saying i do that all the time especially when i get stressed out but those are the things that i try to try to aim for and try to get a certain number of words done a day but then also build in social and rewards and I think what happens when I get stressed is I start self-punishing and I'm like, oh, you haven't done your workout today. So I know you'd made plans to go for a, a good social distance walk with friends this afternoon, but you actually can't. But actually that's not the right way to go about it because if I don't do that, then I'm really going to go out of my head. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just a terrible boss and I'm a terrible employee. So it's just, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. not a great combo. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to traveling for years, you know, since I got into the field, I'm used to traveling almost once every other month. And so this past year I haven't traveled at all and it's weird, but I, I've been mentioning it. I haven't missed it. I mean, I want to go to places and I missed conventions that I, I was scheduled to go to, but I haven't started missing it until now. And now I really mm -hmm. am done. I want to start traveling again. I mean, yeah. Italy and Japan and Australia and England and, this is really annoying. I think we all do. Yeah. Time. <laughs> probably has a similar thing, but the problem with South Africa, and I'm sure Pakistan is the same, is we're so far from everywhere. So, you know, anywhere is, you know, anywhere where there's going to be a literary festival is probably at least 11 hours away uh, to Europe. And the States is like 17 to 22 hours, yep. maybe 40 hours if you're flying, you know, via. Dubai or Qatar or one of those areas. And that's, yeah. I, don't, I don't miss that, but I do miss being in cool places and meeting interesting people. Yeah, an average flight from Lahore to um, Florida. Where I, so I lived in Florida, I still have a home there. Um, the average flight is about 30 hours. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope that um, sooner rather than later we can see you both in person yeah uh, this has been uh really great uh seriously uh the, the readings were awesome uh and it's just 
like I said, it's just great to have people like from all over the world join us. So uh, thank you from on behalf of Ellen and myself. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Usman. Thanks to um, everyone. Thanks uh, for great. Yeah, and who watches this uh, on YouTube afterwards. Uh, this has been Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you. We'll see you next month. Have a have a good night or a good morning. Thanks, Thanks so much.